We are in our sermon series on the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I've been saying Nehemiah for the last um, five months, and we'll get there in a few weeks. Um, but we're, we're uh, on the home stretch with Ezra. Just last week, it's been that long, uh, we finally met Ezra the priest as he leads a new wave of Jews returning from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. I hope, if you've been uh, part of the Ezra series for a number of weeks, I hope you'll at least finish the series with us and know what we mean by exile. Right? The, the, the Jews had turned away in unfaithfulness uh, uh, to the Lord, and the consequence was being deported, uh, sent off to a foreign land, away from Israel. Um, to foreign kingdoms, Assyria, then Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom, and now the Persian kingdom. Ezra's coming back from uh, Babylon, now in the Persian kingdom, and his mission is to rebuild, not the temple, because that had been uh, fully constructed, rebuilt 60 years previously, but his mission is to rebuild, we said last week, the hearts of God's people using God's word. Chapter 7 told us who returned with Ezra, not names, but categories of workers, all of whom had a special role to play at the temple back in Jerusalem. Their jobs, in other words, had everything to do with worship. And now, chapter 8 is actually a flashback to Babylon when Ezra's getting ready to uh, travel back with uh, a group. And so, if you're able to, would you stand with me for the reading? Ezra chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully. These are God's words. These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes, of the descendants of Phinehas, Gershom, of the descendants of Ithamar, Daniel, of the descendants of David, Hattush of the descendants of Shechaniah, of the descendants of Parosh, Zechariah, and with him were registered 150 men, of the descendants of Pahath Moab, Eliehoenai, son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men. Of the descendants of Zatu, Shechaniah, son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the descendants of Adin, Ebed, son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the descendants of Elam, Jeshiah, son of Ataliah, and with him 70 men. Of the descendants of Shephatiah, Zebediah, son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the descendants of Joab, Obadiah, son of Jehiel. And with him, 218 men. Of the descendants of Bani, Shelomith, son of Josephiah. And with him, 160 men. Of the descendants of Babai, Zechariah, son of Babai. And with him, 28 men. Of the descendants of Azgad, Johanan, son of Hakatan. And with him, 110 men. Of the descendants of Adonikam. The last ones, whose names were Eliphelet, Jewel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men, of the descendants of Bigvi, Utai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. I assembled them at the canal that flows toward Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So I summoned Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, El-Natan, Jarib, El-Natan, Natan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders, and Joyarib and Elnatan, who were men of learning. And I ordered them to go to Edo, the leader in Kasiphia. I told them what to say to Edo and his fellow Levites, the temple servants in Kasiphia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us 
Sherebiah, a capable man, from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 in all, and Hashabiah, together with Jeshiah, from the descendants of Merari, and his brothers and nephews, 20 in all. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. There, by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we peer into ancient history, cause it to be fresh, cause it to pierce our hearts, cause it to remind us that you are faithful to old promises and you are still at work restoring your people to bring us home. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, we'll start by talking about the servant team, the servant team. Chapter 7 started out with a list of names to show that Ezra's ancestry can be traced back to Aaron, the first priest, Aaron, the brother of Moses. Chapter 8 also starts with a list, and it also starts by mentioning families that are descended descended from Aaron. And then it mentions one guy named Hattush who is a descendant of King David. I think Ezra's emphasis here is he wants you to know, first of all, with all these lists of names, most of whom don't make any sense to us, don't have any connection, don't remind us, ring a bell, Ezra wants you to know that the priority of God's worship at the temple, led by the priests, sons of Aaron, is still in play. And by mentioning Hattush, descendant of King David, Ezra wants you to know that God's old promise to send the Messiah, who will be a descendant of David, it has not failed. Even though uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed for 130 years, even though his people are scattered to the winds, to foreign pagan empires, God's plan has not failed. And then there are a lot more names. But when Ezra looks at the lists of his traveling companions, he realizes there's a problem. There are no Levites on this list. It's like putting together a football team. You know, it's Super Bowl Sunday, and and yes, I see one jersey in the field. Um, (laughs) Wrong jersey, I would say, but uh, it's okay. it's like putting together a football team. You know, you, you have a, a stout offensive line. You have a, a quick running back. You have a quarterback who's accurate and has great timing, but there are no receivers. There's no one to catch the ball. You, you can't continue, right? You need to find some receivers. If, if you're a Jets fan like me, you have everything but the quarterback, which is an even bigger problem, but that's a topic for another time. Or more relevant to the role of the Levites, and we'll talk about what they were um, assigned back in the day, more relevant. Imagine Grace Redeemer Church on Communion Sunday. 
you're here. I got the sermon covered, but we have no singers or musicians to lead us in musical worship. We have no one back there preparing the bread and the wine or available to distribute it, to, to offer it to you. There's a problem. The, the team's not complete. The Levites were descendants of the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And they supported the work of the priests, who were also of the tribe of Levi, but in a particular branch that ran through Aaron, the brother of Moses. So if you were looking at a family tree, right, um, Levi, son of Jacob, all of the men under the tribe of Levi were Levites. But only one branch that ran through Aaron, brother of Moses, those were the priests. They had special functions that nobody else could do. Levites had lots of different duties. As uh, Israel was wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, the Levites were the only ones who were allowed to carry and construct and then break down the portable tent called the tabernacle. It was their job and theirs only. Once they got to Jerusalem and Solomon, son of David, built the temple, the Levites um, were workers at the temple. We're not exactly sure what they had to do, but they had duties behind the scenes. Uh, Some were assigned to live in cities of refuge scattered throughout Israel. And in those cities, the Levites served as judges to resolve disputes between people. Um, Others who were at the temple serving were musicians. Some were gatekeepers or guards. So here's Ezra's problem as he looks down this list. Of all the people signed up to go back, about 5,000 people. Why were there zero Levites? Not a single one. Very striking to Ezra. He, he knows. If you were descended from the tribe of Levi, back in Israel, you couldn't own land. And for an agricultural society, that meant, that meant you couldn't generate your own income. You were supported entirely by the tithes of the people. Your job, if you were back as a Levite in Jerusalem, your job was set for life. And it was a servant's role. And it would be your son's jobs and your son's son's job. No choice. Few would notice your behind-the-scenes work. All sweat, no glory. So... If your family is descended from Levi and Ezra's calling all Jews to return to Jerusalem and you're a resident in Babylon and that's all you've ever known, your people have been there for 70 years, you were born there, do you think you would have responded? Do you think you would have left everything behind, everything that you've known, packed it in a bag on a mule, maybe? Maybe you were walking with everything and traveled uh, almost 900 miles across dangerous roads with bandits all around to go somewhere you've heard of, grandpa and grandma told you about, to a life of service. Remember, the temple had been destroyed 130 years ago. 
And before that, for decades, the people were increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. Spiritual vitality is not in your immediate um, family's experience, right? Worship at the temple is even farther removed. Worship that uh, required making sacrifices and offerings that were costly to you, right? The animals that you had raised offered to the Lord, not eaten for the next six months, supporting your family. Temple worship had been, for hundreds of years, crowded out by worldly priorities. And maybe that's still true of your life now in Babylon. You live in a land where faith in the one true God isn't respected, and sometimes it's held against you. So when you hear the announcement, it doesn't move you. Life's comfortable. You're making a good living. Your, your priority is on making a better future for your children. Why leave everything and go? As a pattern of life, you, you don't really think about how God's calling you to serve Him or how He wants you to spend your time and money. You don't choose your home based on what God thinks, how it might better serve His interests. You just want cheaper taxes, a highly rated school district, township amenities. Wait, wait a second. Are we talking about Bergen County in 2023 or Babylon in 458 BC? Because they seem to be overlapping in these dynamics facing the people of God. The problem in Ezra chapter 8 is that zero Levites believe that God is worthy of their whole lives. And I wonder if today we have similar challenges. Ezra will not go back without any Levites because temple worship requires workers. But so does GRC church worship requires worships, uh, workers. You know, every week I, I am encouraged um, early on Sunday mornings when I see so many faces walking around um, and with, with uh, smiles on their faces ready to serve the Lord. And I'm talking 6.30 a.m. early for some worship team members. Levite-like roles, we could say, at the temple sanctuary. We just call, don't call it a temple anymore. It's the church. And if, if I were honest, what's sometimes discouraging is how many passionate recruiting pitches it takes in a church of our size to build a rotation, because it's not an every week here uh, early on and, and here all morning, how many recruiting pitches it takes to build a rotation to cover all of the Sunday morning tasks, Levite-like work. We always need new ushers, PowerPoint operators, AV technicians, welcome teams, smiling faces, nursery workers, kids club teachers, all behind the scenes, support tasks, all sweat, no glory, just like the Levites. Levites in Babylon, 458 BC, and regular churchgoers in 2023 hear announcements like those and duck their heads. Carry on with life because responding is not convenient, if we're being honest. Being on a schedule limits social flexibility. 
having to drive two cars to church or miss brunch one Sunday out of six. Not worth it. I think Babylon 458 BC has a lot to say to Bergen County 2023. Is worship a high enough priority in your life? Another way of asking the same thing, is God worthy of your time and effort? Ezra wasn't leaving town. On his mission from God with 5,000 people ready to roll until he got some Levites on board. Worship required their service. And so he sends a a recruiting team. He knows exactly where to go. Uh, And in only 12 days' time, 18 Levites from one family, 20 Levites from another, and 220 other temple servants, assistants to the assistants to the priests, even lower down on the totem pole, they show up ready to, re- uh, ready to leave everything they've ever known for a faith adventure. What would motivate them to do this? To honor the Lord their God, to say with their lives, with their, with their intent to serve, to learn how to serve, because they've never done this. They show up ready to say to the Lord their God, the one true God of Israel, you are worthy, and we are going. Ezra knows it's only, verse 18, because the gracious hand of our Lord was upon us. Three times in chapter 7, another three or four times in chapter 8. The servant team. Secondly, we see Ezra lead the people in the posture of humility. He's got his crew, and here's the very next thing he does. Verse 21. There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. We know that because... The end result is they get to Jerusalem safely. Everything accounted for. The last part of chapter 8 tells us that this caravan of 5,000 people will be carrying literally tons of treasure. You can look in the footnotes uh, that tell you what the units represent. Tons of silver and gold distributed among these 5,000 people. So, a little police escort would seem to be wise, don't you think? 900 miles through wilderness, desert, dusty roads, people hiding behind rocks. A little police escort would seem to be wise, but a relationship of faith doesn't come with an instruction manual. There's nothing you can look up to say, in situation 23-F... This is the wise, faith-filled, obedient response, attitude, word to share, and that is disobedient and foolish. I mean, if only wisdom could be looked up in a chart, right? You know, big chart, like an offensive coordinator calling plays, you know, which, where are we? Oh, this is what I do. doesn't work that way. Later on, um, this is an interesting compare and contrast, later on, Nehemiah In chapter 2, he will ask this same king, Artaxerxes, 
to provide safe conduct for his journey to Jerusalem. And for all we know from the biblical passage, he didn't have many people traveling with him, let alone uh, tons of gold and silver to carry back. And yet, the, the biblical passage doesn't suggest at all that Nehemiah has any less faith than Ezra. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 14, verse 6. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. In other words, you want to go on a diet or you want to feast, you do so to the Lord. You want to treat one particular date as special and, or, or, or treat it as any other day of the week, that's fine if you do it to the Lord. The same decision can display humble, dependent faith in God or stubborn self-reliance, ignoring the sovereignty of the true king. The same decision can honor God or reject him. Depends on your heart orientation. So how can you figure out the best path? How do you discern the way of wisdom? Before Israel entered the promised land, Moses warned them that if they turned away from worshiping the one true God, quote, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. That's exile. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there, in Babylon, you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. What's the key? Even before they had screwed up, well before they were threatened with exile, the key to life, to flourishing, to God's restored blessing is seek him with all your heart, with all your mind. Make him your priority. And secondly, return to the Lord your God. Why would you need to return? Because you left. <laughs> because of your sin. Return is the same word for repent in the Hebrew. Why do you need to repent? Because in your sin, you have made something or someone or some experience more important than God. Like... Life here in pagan Babylon is not bad. Why heed the call of the Lord to leave everything? It's not worth it. When you say it's not worth it, it's a decision of worship. And you're saying God is not worthy of your worship. He's not worthy of that investment, that cost, that sacrifice, whatever it may be. That's the key to life. Seek him with all your heart, with all your soul, and return, which is needed because you've sinned. Fasting and praying are one collective means. They go hand in hand. Fasting and praying are one means to recalibrate your heart towards God. So here in chapter 8, when Ezra and the people fast and pray, they're looking to God for help and not to the king. 
That's what fasting and praying cultivate, uh, a posture of humility before the Lord God, affirming your desperate need of Him. That's the connection. So when you get hungry because you have chosen to skip a meal, your physical need for food, whether you feel weak or you just crave the taste and satisfaction of fullness, that hunger becomes productive when you realize and pray this way. As much as I crave food right now, God, you're reminding me I am not defined by my physical desires. Yes, without food, in the back of your mind, you, re- you know, without food, I would die. But even with all of the best food in the world available to me right now, calorie-free, I would die eternally and spiritually without God's sustaining grace. That is my greater need. I would die without God's word to point me to the Savior. My greatest need, even greater than this gnawing pain in my gut, my greatest need, as real as that is, the realer, more real need is God himself. That's how fasting and praying, going hungry, can become productive. Just before Jesus began his public ministry, He went into the wilderness for 40 days and nights where Satan tempted him. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And this is Jesus' answer, quoting scripture from Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 450 years after Ezra and the people humbled themselves before the Lord, Jesus displayed the ultimate posture of humility from the cradle to the grave. Jesus, a descendant of the tribe of Judah, not of Levi, and yet he was the greatest and the last high priest. The last verses of Ezra 8 will describe dozens and dozens and dozens of animals offered up in the fire as whole burnt offerings to atone for sin. Every animal pointing ahead to Jesus, the perfect and final sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 450 years after Ezra, the father asked the son to leave. Not comfortable in pagan Babylon, but the perfect glories of heaven at the father's right hand. And Jesus didn't hesitate to go. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Jesus would go in perfect obedience, not for his sake, but for the sake of sinners like you and like me, to restore us from the exile of sin and death and to bring him home, bring us home into his presence. This is the gospel according to Ezra. Let's pray. Jesus You do not call us to anything you have not yourself willingly, obediently experienced. And the book of Hebrews even tells us that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so remind us, Lord, that You don't ask us to pay a price that is so costly that we will be destitute. You ask us 
to sacrifice and invest, yes, and to find the price paid so very worth it because in your grace and generosity, you promise to give us all things. Jesus, you are the pearl of great price. And to forsake all and gain you, there is nothing greater. There is no higher joy. There is no more lasting satisfaction. There is no other path of fulfillment. So show us that, Lord. Show us our sin. Show us our Savior greater. Amen.